Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, this is, this is 3CR and we are the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here at noon every Saturday to defend and to promote public education. That's public education that is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access. It's open to all children and it should be public in ownership and control. No private part public partnerships. Thank you very much. That's really private partnerships. Uh, it's a one-way thing when, when the taxpayers pay for private enterprise. And our governments should provide a good public education for everyone because it is the only one that is publicly accountable for our taxes, for public money. Well, we know that this is less and less the case because there is this very strange ideology abroad that somehow private is better than public. Uh, a bit by the by, I was very amused this week to discover that while our Defence Minister was um, almost abusing China uh, about the Spratly Islands and the militarisation of the Spratly Islands and how we had to have our trade routes through the Spratly Islands, up in Darwin... The Liberal government up there has privatised the Darwin port for $506 million and, um, <clears throat> yes, they're going to build all sorts of things up there. So I was wondering whether in the war that we might have, uh, they're hoping that the Chinese won't bomb Darwin because they already own it. So that's where privatisation leads, I suppose. Uh, one wonders whether or not we live in a nation state anymore. That might be a good thing. It might not. I don't know. But... That's where this ideology of privatisation at any cost seems to be going. Well, we have a website at www.adogs.info and we have a press release 622 this week, which has gone up on our website at www.adogs.info. And this is it. Islamic radicals and religious proselytising in public schools. According to the Fairfax Press, public schools have been used by religious groups to proselytise and have been blamed for Islamic radicals murdering innocent citizens. Uh, that was the Sun-Herald of the 11th of October, page 8. And I'll quote what they said. Every publicly known teenager who has travelled overseas to fight in Iraq or Syria or is believed to have been radicalised attended government-run high schools in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland. Farhad Yaba, 
The 15-year-old who murdered New South Wales police employee Curtis Cheng came from the public school system. The revelation comes amid concerns that religious teaching and prayer groups in public schools have been manipulated by religious groups as a cover for proselytising activities. Well, this is a very serious allegation. And uh, dogs believe that it's highly questionable whether public schools can be blamed for the action of radicalised teenagers. Blame for violence, and we've, I mean, I think there has been a lot of violence. We found it with uh, domestic violence in Australia. Blame for violence lies with the perpetrators and those who corrupt them. However, as dogs have argued, religious radicalisation of teenagers in a public school could be one of the unintended consequences of any religious group, however genuine and well-meaning, obtaining the right to enter public schools for the purposes of promoting any religious beliefs. This is why our public schools must be free, universal and secular. Dr John Kay, the New South Wales Greens MP, understands this very well. And we quote from him. If radicalisation of Muslim students is occurring in New South Wales public schools, it's because proselytising Christian groups have protected their right to run lunchtime religious meetings. The real blame lies with successive New South Wales governments that have failed to stand up to the push to turn public schools into recruiting grounds for aggressive religions of all types. The Baird government's guidelines put all of the responsibility on principals to ensure that the content is appropriate. It's an impossible ask that leaves principals frustrated and public schools vulnerable to radical preachers of all faiths. Public schools in Australia do a remarkable job of building a cohesive future despite inadequate funding and politicians pushing their own religious barrows. Public schools should be neutral religiously where discussion is about values, history and culture. So um, dogs agree with John Kay and this is why, although many people uh, who are members of the dogs may have religious uh, views, they have, well, they take the Enlightenment position. In a country where you have many religious beliefs, then public schools should be open to all with offence to none. And the way around that is to have none, nothing. Uh, about religious proselytising in state schools. On the Arthur Phillip High School uh, business, I was reading somewhere, I'm sorry, I can't give you the exact reference, where, in fact, the uh, lunchtime prayer groups had been discontinued at Arthur Phillip High School and the young man who murdered the police employee in Parramatta um, was leaving school at lunchtime to go to the mosque. So I'm not so sure that you can blame the school anyway. But um, that's by the by. Uh, it might be a sensitive issue, but the dogs are not too frightened to take on sensitive issues. Public schools should be open to all children with offence to none. And in a religiously diverse culture such as we have, then uh, religion should be left to the home and the parents and the uh, religious groups. It shouldn't be imposed upon our public facilities. But uh, that's all for me for the moment.
For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. You're listening to The Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the www through our website at www.adogs.info or indeed through the 3CR website. So check us out. Well, you are, of course, if you're listening, um, because we are part of a public community broadcasting network, getting ideas out that you don't hear on other radio stations. Now, here on The Dogs, we often indulge in reasonably in-depth analysis and, well, I say analysis of policy issues, um, which is something you don't necessarily hear a lot of in the mainstream media. And today on the program, we're going to be focusing on what Jean has hinted at in her introduction, which is the nature of how sort of free market capitalism or the private sector and education don't necessarily mix. Now, here on The Dogs, we often talk about the religious aspects of the private schooling system in Australia and the problems that that presents. But there's also, I mean, it's always been there, but over the last 20 or 30 years, there's a growing attack on the public school system from free marketeers, from people who wish to make money from the education of the children of Australia. Now, it's an old saying. I mean, sort of various sort of old-fashioned socialists or even new-fashioned socialists will say, where a natural monopoly exists, it should be run for the public, by the public, for public purposes. Natural monopolies like public transport, I mean, the, the key's in the word, um, like, the, like, like the provision of power and communications, these are natural monopolies. These are things that people cannot do without. They are universal services. And education, certainly in the 21st century, I think is what you would have to call a national monopoly, which is to say the largest number of people getting the best education in the nation of Australia is a public good and so therefore should be overseen by the people of Australia not overseen by people whose interest primarily um, is making money for themselves and their shareholders, but it is overseen by people whose interests are truly reflected, which is the people of Australia. Now, these ideas, these ideas of attempting to privatise or autonomatise or corporatise the education system in Australia and indeed around the world in the name of increased efficiencies has been growing. And it is, in fact, as far as the dog's concerned, an insidious force. Um, some people might call it evil. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to call it insidious. Because often we are told that private is good and public is bad. And this is chanted like a mantra. Um, now, I'd just like to, dislike, to start this discussion, um, and it is a discussion really, between the various voices, two and f- four, like for and against, the idea of privatising education. Um, I'd like to start this discussion by stepping outside of the educational field and referring to, I think, what I think is a very interesting article by Ross Gittins, which was published in The Age. Actually, it was a couple of weeks ago. But I think, really, it, it sort of puts the finger on the problem as it exists. Now, Ross Gittins is an economics editor, so 
he has made his reputation by talking about the way the world works when it comes to money. And he had, after many years of analysis, come to the conclusion that competition, competition which is the engine of um, private enterprise, does in fact have its drawbacks. Ross Gittin says that competition is billed by economists as a wonderful thing. It is the invisible restrainer of a capitalist economy and essential to ensuring consumers get a good deal. However, many economists aren't as conscious as they should be that competition has costs as well as benefits. So he's an economist. He always talks in, in dry terms of costs and benefits. Mm-hmm. He says it is true, of course, that monopoly, in use, monopoly is usually a terrible thing. Because if you have a monopoly in a capitalist um, economic system, this allows for arrogant, inflexible behaviour on the part of producers with little pressure on them to keep prices down to provide much choice. Dealings with government departments show, in terms of Ross and what he's talking about, government departments show what monopolies are like. Now, economists tend to assume that the more competition, the better, and the customers can never get too much choice. However, this shows how, despite their loud protestations to the contrary, their thinking is excessively influenced by their most basic, their least realistic model of what they would call, as economists, perfect competition. Now, psychological experiments show that when shoppers face too much choice, they tend to avoid making a decision. That's because information they need to make informed choice isn't freely available because the human mind hasn't evolved to be good at choosing from more than two items with differing characteristics. Now, many real-world markets are characterised by oligopolies, that is to say a few large firms accounting for most of the sales. If you've ever bought a computer lately, you'll know what I'm talking about. Or indeed, if you've ever bought a mobile phone, you'll know what I'm talking about. Now, oligopolies make economic sense because they're needed to fully exploit economies of scale, which are assumed... The economies of scale are actually just sort of forgotten about and assumed away under the ideas of perfect competition. Adam Smith had less than no time for any kind of monopoly, whether it was an oligopoly or just merchants making a deal with each other. Yes, the British East India Company comes to mind in the 18th and 19th century, but um, sort of talking away from historical ideas of economy, um, Ross Giddens goes on to say, so that he says, in reality, competition and scale economics are in conflict. In oligopolies, even a market with a relatively high number of producers, competition is blunted by product differentiation. Much of what is cosmetic, but as with most advertising, product differentiated product differentiation, is intended to induce consumers to decide on an emotional rather than rational basis. Now, phony differentiation is also intended to frustrate rational comparisons. It's not by chance that it's almost impossible to compare mobile phone contracts. I don't know about you, but whenever I've been in the business of buying a mobile phone on a contract, it is, in fact, impossible to compare them because the way they're structured is, is, is so, well, I would say devious. Um, When economists speak about competition, they're usually thinking of competition about price. However, though, oligopolists watch their competitors like hawks, and they much prefer to avoid price competition. Competing, rather, via advertising, competing in their marketing, competing in their packaging, and other forms of differentiation that don't involve price. 
Now, McKay's law of competition states that the key to competition is a focus on the customer, not the competitor. However, this is what oligopolists do not do. Now, in the real world, and that, I suppose, includes the media these days in the 21st century, competitor orientation competition is rife. This robs the customer, actually, of genuine choice. It's actually a form of risk aversion, or indeed risk management. And if I do the same as my competitor, I minimise the risk of that competitor beating me. It's what, in Harold Hotelling's classic example, prompted two ice cream sellers to be back-to-back in the middle of the beach, regardless of whether some other positioning would serve the customers better. It explains why business economists' forecasts tend to cluster usually around the official forecasts. In his book, The Darwin Economy, Robert Frank of Cornell University argues that lefties tend to see inadequate competition as the most prevalent form of market failure, whereas it's actually collectively acting on the problems that each of the people in the market see. Now, a collective action problem arises when players in a market realise they're doing something mutually destructive, but no one's game to stop during, oh, basically, stop, stop being mutually destructive for fear of being creamed by their competitors. Now, usually in commercial markets, the only answer is for the government to intervene and impose a solution on all the players, for which sometimes the players themselves are grateful. However, that's not a help for our political parties, which have got themselves locked into a game of ever-declining standards of behaviour and they don't know how to escape from them. Now, it's collective action problems that make it so easy for politicians to manipulate the media. Now, advocates of federalism in Australia believe it's good to have the states free to be different and competing against each other. In reality, the competition is mainly negative. The states compete to attract foreign investors with special tax concessions and the foreigners play them off against each other. And to step outside of Ross Giddens, um, that's exactly what South Australia did with the Mitsubishi Motor Company. They put together all these, all these amazing concessions which meant that Mitsubishi didn't have to pay much tax and got money directly from the government. And then what did Mitsubishi do? They up sticks and left. Hmm. Now, back in the early 1970s, the McMahon government transferred its payroll tax to the states hmm. to give them a growth tax. So that they would have the income tax. Hmm. That was in the war years, yeah. Anyway, the McMahon government did that um, because this growth tax was needed to cover their growth in spending. Now, in the decades since the 1970s, they've done little but compete with each other by raising their tax-free thresholds and cutting their rates. Mm. This huge increase in federal grants, by the way, and this is where Ross Gittins gets quite interesting, the huge increase in federal grants to private schools in recent decades was justified as increasing parents' choice and imposing competitive pressure on public schools. There is little evidence that this has worked, nor any evidence that indeed this has held down private school fees. How could it when the private schools are parasitic on the main public system? And similarly... Julia Gillard's My School website, with all its information about the academic performance of particular schools, which is intended to increase competition between schools, has failed to produce any increase 
in the proportion of students achieving national minimum standards in reading, writing and numeracy over the five years to 2014. Now, depending upon circumstances, competition can make things better or it can make things worse or it can actually have very little difference at all. Now, we'll be continuing with this examination, but I think that's a good starting point. The idea that competition is good, government um, administration is bad, and Ross Gittins, I think, really lays down the ground rules about what we're looking at, because now we're going to examine how this whole competition policy plays out in a couple of countries, firstly in Australia, and also then again in the United States, where there's been some very interesting things happened in the last week or two. But before we do that, I think we should have some nice calming music. Um, I think David Kinsella is a very good organist, and I think we'd, we should hear him. A lovely CD called Eloquence. Um, and we'd, yes, a lovely little bit of harpsichord music, I think, from the Sweet in C minor uh, by Mr. Stokuda, and it's the Prelude. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Um, yes, we're discussing the free market, and one of the words which is used in the education sphere to talk about the free market's sort of relationship with education is autonomy. And so whenever you hear the word autonomy, just, just be very careful because the word autonomy is all about creating competition in a marketplace within education. Jean, you've got something more to yes, say Yes, it this. also um, refers to, they often talk about the word independent and the question is, independent of what? The public system and its strength has always been a centralised administration which has been mucked around with, that has been... Uh, reinvented so many times in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Why? Because the private schools do not want the public system to be a strong centralised system. The only centralised system they want, of course, is the very, very centralised system, which is the Roman Catholic system. 
Uh, but they say, of course, that they're about choice and autonomy. Now, let's have a look at this word autonomy. Trevor Cobalt and uh, some other researchers have come up with a very interesting idea about what we really should be talking about when we talk about autonomy. He points out we should be talking about teacher autonomy, not the autonomy of individual schools. Principals and teachers need the support of a strong centralised administration, especially when they are on the forefront of social change or social problems, as you have in Parramatta in Sydney. But in the debate about school autonomy, which frequently gets lost in that school autonomy is different from teacher autonomy. And it's teacher autonomy that is the more important factor when we talk about classroom learning. And anybody who has been a teacher knows exactly what I am talking about. The distinction between school autonomy and teacher autonomy was recently emphasised by a man called Parsi Salberg, who was a visiting fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and who, in his previous life, had been the Director General of Finland's Ministry of Education. And he has written an article in the United States edition of The Conversation, which is a semi-academic magazine, I suppose. It's online that um, you can you can put it up, the conversation, and find a, a lot of very interesting material in it. And he is comparing the experience of Finland and US teachers. And what he, what he finds with the US teachers can perhaps be talked about with some of our Australian teachers. Salzburg says that US teachers are much more restricted in what they do compared to Finnish teachers. They face very different working conditions. Teachers in the United States work longer hours, 45 hours per week. And I think our Victorian teachers would be saying that they're closer to 60 to 70 a week. In Finland, they only work for 32 hours per week. And they also teach more weekly, 27 hours compared to 21 hours in Finland. This means that American teachers on average have less time to do anything beyond their teaching duties, whether it's alone or with colleagues, than teachers in most other OECD countries. Now, over half of American middle school teachers report that, they've, that they never teach jointly with other teachers in the same classroom, compared to about one-third of teachers in Finland. And 42% of US teachers report that they never engage in joint projects across classes or age groups. And in Finland, only 23% of teachers lack that experience. Salzburg says that having freedom to teach alone by being the only teacher in the classroom doesn't necessarily provide teachers with professional autonomy. He says that teachers in Finland see themselves as professionals akin to doctors, architects, etc. And this means that they use their professional judgment, creativity and autonomy individually and together with other teachers to find the best ways to help their students to learn. Also, in Finland, teachers design their own school curricula, guided by a flexible national framework. 
Now, things have been a bit better in Australia than they used to be uh, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, Robert is uh, shaking his head here. I know that when I was a teacher, I made jolly sure that I drew up my own curriculum, within bounds, of course. Um, And it sometimes got you into a little bit of strife, but um, it was amazing what one can do. Uh, But that, uh, that actually, you can only do it if, in fact, you've got... Uh, a fairly a fair knowledge of your subject up to say a master's level it's much easier if you don't have a fair knowledge of your your subject for example if you're an English history teacher being asked to teach maths then I assure you uh, whatever is laid down is what you teach and it becomes very um, very constricted indeed what you can offer the children because you don't have the knowledge to offer the children Uh, In the United States, teachers drill students for standardised tests. And if you as a teacher are not on top of your material, then standardised tests are usually what you fall back on. Uh, Teachers uh, uh, will tell you that they have no choice but to do that because the test results are part of their performance evaluations. And this is happening more and more in both the United States and in Australia. If you are a teacher that doesn't know terribly much about your subject area, then usually that is what you will fall back on. And uh, you will take comfort in the fact that if you get good results in these standardised tests, then you are a pretty good teacher. Uh, I suggest you are a pretty good person at drilling other human beings into performing like a performing dog. Now, a common uh, idea was that Finnish teachers seem to have much more professional autonomy than teachers in the United States to help students to learn and also to feel that they can learn. It's terribly exciting when a child suddenly realises that when you've been teaching them something, they can actually do it. I think it is the most rewarding experience for any teacher for a child to be jumping up and down and saying to their parent or to anybody else, look what I've just done. I've just learnt to do something. And sometimes it's I've just learnt to think something. And uh, that is perhaps the most rewarding thing, isn't it, that a teacher can have. Robert isn't shaking his head, so I'm assuming that he's agreeing. Yes, he is. He's agreeing with me here. Well, professional autonomy requires trust and trust makes teacher autonomy alive. And so what is terribly important, of course, is the relationship between the teacher and the students. And that is just so terribly important in professionalism. Uh, Salberg also says that teacher autonomy should not be confused with school autonomy. And unfortunately, a lot of these strange people that at the moment we have in Canberra talking about education in our parliament just seem to think word autonomy, independent, private, all good, all good feel words for a politician. Um, But they have no idea what actually teacher autonomy in a classroom really is about and how tremendous it is and how it's got nothing whatever to do with school autonomy. 
Um, now, Salberg also observes there's little evidence that school autonomy increases student results. In fact, it's the other way with charter schools and others in the United States. But in contrast, he notes, the OECD has concluded that greater autonomy in decisions related to curriculum and assessment, in other words, teacher professional autonomy, tends to be associated with better student performance. So, Salberg cites the warning by a well-known teacher educator, Professor Andy Hargraves, about unintended consequences of greater school autonomy. It's about the freedom of the school management to operate without due regard for the community or for local democratic control. It's not necessarily about teacher autonomy at all. It's actually going to be about, in Mr Pine and perhaps in Mr Birmingham's view, um, McDonald's having uh, control of your local high school. Uh, school autonomy is often leading to lessening of teacher professionalism and autonomy. So he concludes, he didn't, doesn't think the primary problem in American education is the lack of teacher quality or the part that part of the solution would be to find the best and the brightest to become teachers, the quality of an education system can exceed the quality of its teachers if teaching is seen as a team sport and not as an individual race. It's always very sad in a staff room of teachers to see teachers evaluating themselves on the standardised testing results of their students. If that if we are now going to revert into the 19th century payment by results, which we got away with, with our, from, I'm sorry, with our centralised systems in, by the 1920s, if we're going to go back into this 19th century, um, it was an excuse for education, it certainly was not education, um, then it would be a tragedy. And this is perhaps the most powerful lesson that the United States and Australia can learn from better performing education systems like Finland. Teachers need greater collective professional autonomy and much more support to work with one another. And that support has to come from both the administration of the school and a centralised administration. This is actually what you had um, when there were inspectors who were not there to just evaluate teachers but were there to help and to encourage uh, new teachers. And that was my experience uh, in the early 1960s in the New South Wales education system. I had tremendous support from the inspectors who came out not only to evaluate me but also to assist me in my professional development uh, in the schools that I was teaching at. Uh, but of course, if you're going to privatise, at public expense of course, then you're going to have a situation like we've got here with um, the TAFE sector, where a Phoenix Institute has finally, after it was exposed, utterly scandalous goings on, uh, by this Phoenix Institute. It was exposed uh, in both the ABC and the Fairfax media. They have finally, finally, after uh, so much of our money has been wasted, 
deregistered this company. Um, and the uh, interesting information is that that their share price had reached $3.40 in late September 2014, but it's crashed to below $0.10 after it was deregistered and stripped of almost $20 in funding by Victorian authorities over poor quality training in two of its Victorian businesses, which have since been disbanded. So if education is going to be a business, which I gather is going to be part of this TPP that we're having with the United States and probably China, then what is the future of a public education system with teachers who are genuine autonomous professionals? But uh, that's enough from me. Uh, I've had quite a long say here about my (laughs) my feelings on this issue. I'll uh, now give Robert a go. Thank you very much, Jean. Welcome, welcome, dear listeners, to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We'll be dealing with this question of autonomy and its code and wordnesses that relate to the sort of principles of the free market after these messages. Come along to a fundraising trivia night organised by the North Carlton Railway Neighbourhood House. Support your public housing neighbours and learn more about the struggle to maintain public housing in public hands. It's all happening on Saturday, October 31, from 7 till 11pm at St Michael's Church Hall, 14 McElwraith Street, Prince's Hill. Bring your own food and drink and join the fun. Tickets are only $25 with discounts available for a table of eight. All proceeds go towards young people and families living in public housing in our community. For more information, call 9380-6654. This event is organised with the help of Friends of Public Housing Victoria, proud 3CR supporters. Are you looking after someone? Carers Victoria supports people looking after friends or family members who have a disability, mental or chronic illness or are frail due to age. There are 774,000 carers in Victoria. Are you one? We're here to support carers through practical, financial and information services. Just call the Carers Advisory Line on 1800 242 636 to start the conversation about how we can help. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and indeed podcast. It's good to have you company. We're talking about school autonomy, the pros and cons. We're talking about the free market and whether it's an appropriate thing to have free market principles applied to education in Australia. We're talking about it because, actually, it's a rubbish idea. It's actually a completely rubbish idea to put a free market principles and um, overlay what it is that's going on with education in Australia. I mean, if you've got a marketplace, that means you've got people who produce stuff, you've got the product they produce, and you have the consumers who consume it, be it a good or a service or whatever. And education doesn't really... That doesn't doesn't tick any of those boxes. Education in a marketplace. I mean, who produces education? I mean, it's part of the human condition that we're harnessing the curiosity of the children of Australia to make to make the world a better place. I mean, I, you can call that a product if you like that's produced. <laughs> but I think if you try and put that, it's like putting how do you a square. It? How, how do you put that? I don't even know. 
Where do you, um, what, which, which aisle do you find that in? Right. <laughs> and, and who are the consumers of this product that's produced by the manufacturers? I mean, I mean it, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's craziness. It, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure you can try and do it. Many people have tried to do it. In fact, um, there's some, there's one, of the, one of the greatest advocates of doing this is a fellow called Brian Corbell down here in Melbourne. He's one of the world's leading advocates of school autonomy and marketplace reform in schools. But... Um, Dealing with local issues first, there's a very interesting um, series of articles that were produced by the Australian Council for Educational Leaders in their perspective publication. And several people have got up, and I think in a quite fair-minded way, sort of analysed what this whole school autonomy, which leads to a marketplace of education in Australia, actually means. What are we talking about when we're taking market forces and jamming them, squishing them over what it is to educate kids in Australia? Well, Dr Scott Eastcott, who um, works at the Office of Educational Leadership at the University of New South Wales, has this to say. He said, look, if you want to improve student outcomes, well, outcomes is a funny word anyway, it's kind of businessy word, um, improving student outcomes, is the answer to improving them school autonomy? Well, in response to this question, he says, the performance of schools, and in particular students, is being held back by bureaucratic structures. And he says, this is a commonly held belief and one which almost everyone has a personal experience to support. The contemporary policy solution, although one with a rich history, is school autonomy. Now, give schools, he says, or more specifically principals, greater powers and they will overcome the constraints of a bureaucratic system and student outcomes will improve. This is the doctrine. The freedoms provided will enable school leaders, the principals, to remove underperforming staff and develop programs for maximum performance. But, says Dr Scott Eastcott, are such claims warranted? Now, despite recent claims in the media of the extraordinary improvements in student achievements from a landmark study just recently come out, the research-based support for school autonomy is actually far from convincing. So he says, what do we actually know about school autonomy and its impact on student outcomes? Now, he says this this whole process actually has a rich history, and I'm sure Jean would have some opinions about this. Now, because in many ways, Australia was a leading adopter of school autonomy, particularly in the ACT and Victoria during the Kennett years. The world's leading advocate of self-managing schools, Brian Cordwell, is in fact based in Melbourne. Now, as a result, there is a rich history of systemic reforms, advisory roles to governments, publications and scholarly critique. Rarely, however, have these diverse sources come together to deliver a comprehensive statement on the merits of school autonomy for improving student outcomes. Now, obscuring this whole debate on the merit of school autonomy is the slippery use of language. We've had decentralisation, devolution, self-managing, school autonomy, principal autonomy, independent public schools, just to name a few. Internationally, we can add charter schools in the US, academies in England, free schools in Sweden, and the growth of for-profit providers running schools in India and Africa, among others. Without due attention, all of these reforms are used interchangeably to make the arguments for and against. 
Nobody ever mentions what is actually happening with, say, the Catholic education system and how it's centralising. They don't fit into this at all. Not at all. Well, Scott Scott goes on to talk about something which I always find. It's one of my favourite subjects. The relationship between correlation and causation. Mm -hmm. Support for increased autonomy is frequently found in large-scale international tests. In particular, OECD claims that in countries where schools have greater autonomy, students tend to perform better. The presence of autonomy at the school level does not mean that it is the cause of improved or higher performance. What is often omitted from this OECD evidence is that autonomy is specific to what is taught and how students are assessed. Such a degree of autonomy is not part of what we're talking about here in Australia. No. No. It is actually possible to claim the counter. The advent of national testing, for example, the NAPLAN test, the national curriculum, the national professional standards, teacher education reforms, and the public accountabilities, such as my school, create an environment that is the opposite of autonomous when it comes to the teaching and learning process. Now, in an era where some people's work on effect sizes and impact has come to dominate educational dialogue and debate, it is a little surprising that a reform with little and mixed empirical support has remained so popular. It has been frequently reported that there is a lack of rigorous and robust evidence that school autonomy leads to better student outcomes. Even an evaluation study from the University of Melbourne on independent public schools found little evidence of changes to school, school, school out, student outcomes and no substantive increase in student achievement. Similar findings have been published from the United Kingdom, the United States, New Zealand and back here in Australia. Even the OECD has presented mixed evidence. In short, the empirical evidence for school autonomy as opposed to teacher autonomy Mm. and improved student outcomes is at best inconclusive. Now, Dr Scott Escott says there is really no debate about this very fundamental issue. What is most disappointing is the absence, he says, of serious dialogue on the merits of what school autonomy is actually all about. In a 2012 review of related literature for the evaluation of empowering local schools for the Department of Education, Employment and Work Relations, any form of critique or contrary research was reduced to a single sentence. And that sentence was... Robust criticism was mounted. (laughs) Similarly, in recent media reports, critique was dismissed as straw men arguments. In the interest of advancing the work of schools, there is a need for serious dialogue and debate. The logic of argument and refutation would bring about clarity on what actually this whole school autonomy really means, what evidence we have to support it or not, and what we need to know. Now, Dr. Scott Escott is obviously an academic because he's sitting on the fence with this, but in his conclusion, he says, there is little doubt that the argument for greater autonomy is persuasive. The logic of the claim seems like common sense, and it almost seems impossible to refute. This, however, is the greatest danger of the debate. The unquestioned support for a common sense claim is not helpful for improving performance of Australian education systems. There's not to say that school autonomy is not a factor or even the answer. Rather, Dr. Scott Escott argues that the point is inconclusive. Dialogue and debate is minimal and more likely to be people taking taking pot shots at one another. 
Now, that's what Dr. Scott Escott says. He says there's no evidence to suggest this whole school autonomy debate is actually what's on about. But uh, from the same um, from the same magazine, there's a, an interesting a perspective taken on school autonomy by Christine Corsi, um, AM, Order of Australia, and she's the principal of the Rooty Hill High School up in New South Wales. And she says, straight up and down, because she is a principal in a school, she says the education profession needs to continue to challenge, question and confront any policy that does not have an effect size on student performance and outcomes that is greater than expected growth. She says she wants to suggest three reasons principals, teachers and parents should question the value of the whole, the whole process of school autonomy, mm. which, as I say, is code for introducing a free market into the education of the students and the children of Australia. She says there's three reasons why we need to do this. Firstly, autonomy is simply not the main game. In her long experience as a principal, autonomy discussions in Australia either use an ambiguous definition or are limited to discussions of governance, management of finances and staffing and school operations. Mm. The Australian literature rarely encompasses broader notions of autonomy in curriculum, student learning, assessment and school culture, which is exactly what you were saying, Jean, about that fellow from Finland. Mm. In fact, she says, the most recent reports about autonomy have written during the mandated implementation of the Australian curriculum, the ongoing mandating of A to E reporting from kindergarten to the final years of school, mandated tighter attendance regulations and significant cuts to vocational options for secondary students and indeed privatising many of those, those, those yeah. vocational options. Now, in these critical professional areas, government remains committed to strong, centralised control over curriculum and the professional work of teachers and schools while delegating more clerical and administrative work to the principals and school staff. Moving principals and teachers from their roles as educational leaders to administrative managers will not, of itself, improve the learning or performance of students. Quite the contrary, because they'll just be overworked and they'll be much, much more stressed, particularly when there isn't enough money to pay the very basic bills or even their salaries. And she says the elephant in the room is school funding. Yes. And critically, needs-based funding. Autonomy, yes. proponents, autonomy proponents often assume all students and all schools are the same mm. and that given greater independence, they'll do better. There is little or no evidence to support this view without discussing needs-based school funding, especially when the majority of the more autonomous schools being studied in Australia are either richer <laughs> or have policies applied that do not extend to all schools. That is, they can kick out kids they don't like. Mm. There's always been, particularly, you know, in in even the British tradition, a disinclination to make sure that the children in the lower quartile, the the children of, in some senses, the oppressed, do not get a decent education or an opportunity in life. Mm. And if people are concerned about the radicalisation of young men, then they should perhaps be looking at their view of their opportunities in our Australian um, society Mm. and the point at which the penny drops Mm. that they are the ones that are not going to be chosen for the good jobs. Mm. And as, and as Christine Corsi says, and she's quite, I think, quite right, she says, in 
In the address to the Australian Council for Educational Leaders Conference in 2014, John Hattie said that 65% of schools in Australia were among the best schools in the world. Mm -hmm. The ability of many parents to make private economic decisions to choose a secondary school for their children masks the fact that 35% of Australia's schools meet the needs of communities where parents and, more critically, students have little or no choice Mm. or opportunity and where students start three to five years behind their peers in other Mm. schools. Unfunded school autonomy is unlikely to improve the circumstances in those schools. She says that's one reason why autonomy needs to be questioned. The second reason is autonomy in government schools is defined by legislation as delegated authority. She says if autonomy means the capacity of a self-governing, it also means the capacity to be free from external influence and Mm. control. Mm. Taxpayers do not want governments, border forces, businesses and schools or individuals to be free to do as they want with the children of Australia. The community values and roles that government plays ensuring that all Australian schools can deliver high-quality education for all students. As a government school principal, she says, my role is defined by a complex set of legislative, regulatory and policy frameworks. My authority to lead and manage a school is the best interest of the students comes from three sources. She says, my power comes from the community, from my employer and from my profession. And each of these sources has high expectations of accountability within the system and the school. She says, like some of the most successful service organisations in Australia, the New South Wales government and Catholic systems are organised as local or specialist branches with common policies, procedures and regulations that are managed by a central office. Leaving the schools with capacity to offer customer service, inverted commas, in terms of a site-specific school plan. Curriculum delivery and community engagement. She says she values the expertise of bureaucrats who support the school in system-wide management areas like recruitment, legal disputes, issues management and industrial relations, leaving me, the principal, she says, with more time to actually work with staff, students and parents on key school planning, student learning, well-being and community projects. She's saying that if you take away my bureaucracy, yep. I've got to do more work and I can't well, get oh. to the business of no, what no, I'm she can't. You absolutely can't do it. And as well as that, uh, the principals are having heart attacks far too early mm. and their career uh, has reached the glass ceiling. In the bygone days when you had a, a strong bureaucracy, a principal could give their combined wisdom, the wisdom that they uh, had over a period of years back to the teaching profession through the inspectorate. And even, uh, I mean, we, we now have people at the head of our education systems who have never been inside a classroom. Mm. It's outrageous. Yes. I mean, just, just to finish up on this, she gives a third reason why school autonomy should not just be and critically thought to be the saviour of education in Australia, why the free market's not going to come riding to the rescue like a white horse out of, out of, out of the dawn mm-hmm. to save all our children. And she says that culture is more critical than strategy to school and student success in the 21st century. In a country, she says, where all students should have the opportunity to do their best at school, the management structures and practices of schools should be aligned to support the school's culture and the school's purpose. Observed in one or more of these critical aspects of the school, the school has its expectations, its leadership and its culture, and autonomy doesn't actually address any of these. 
Across the world, there are highly successful school systems with high levels of control. At the same time, more delegated systems and all management models have both strengths and risks. For example, two risks of independence, that is autonomy, are isolation and loose coupling, losing connections. By contrast, the risks of high control systems include dependence on, based on tight coupling and a risk aversion. In this teacher's opinion... Neither approach understands the natures of school cultures. To be successful, Australia needs its schools, its students and its teachers to be interdependent and to take advantage of sharing best practice with each other. Mm. Where teachers work together, where teachers are morally coupled with shared purposes and where students and classes remain at the heart of this work, strong evidence-based learning cultures emerge. In this context, strategies like autonomy and quick-fix things like Teach for Australia including management autonomy, can be a distractor in the real and complex world of how we're supposed to be getting it right. Hmm. Now, often we talk about the nature of the sort of religious nature of, 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 of the education system in Australia, but this whole free market thing is becoming more and more troubling. And these questions that have been raised by these academics and indeed have been raised by us at the Dogs for all these years need to be addressed and addressed in a serious way. Anyway, you've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. And if you're interested in what we have to say, or indeed in Gene's press releases, they're available at our website, which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until then, it's bye for now. I dreamed 
Says he. <laughs> 